Hey everyone, it's Katie in Rome. If you like the show, help us spread the word. Tell a friend. Find us on iTunes. Rate us on iTunes. And visit our website, thebittersweetlife.net. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And we have a guest today. Tiffany, would you like to introduce our guest? Absolutely. Her name is Kate McElwee, and she is living in Rome. She's been here for about a year, and she's got a really, really interesting project. So if you could tell us about that. First of all, welcome, Kate. But if you want to tell, you want to tell us about your project. Say hi. Uh, hi. <laughs> thank, thank you. Um, yeah, my husband and I have lived in Rome for just over a year now. And so we both work full-time from here, and my full-time day job is to work for the ordination of women in the Roman Catholic Church. Had you been to Rome before you got here? Many times, yeah, back and forth and um, had spent a few months here studying the language and but mostly I'd been here for work where my colleague would get arrested and I would have to bail her out of jail or so always under sort of trying circumstances so now I have to learn how to blend and live here (laughs) a little bit more. I want to hear more about that arrest. What? Yeah, why, why was your colleague getting arrested? Well, the cause for women's ordination in the Catholic Church is a very controversial, um, heretical cause. And so we were here with a, an international delegation, and we wanted to deliver a petition with 15,000 signatures in support of a priest who had been excommunicated for his support of women. Came with our banners and our signs and stop traffic (laughs) walking down the street towards St. Peter's and then tried to go into the gates and um, were stopped and asked to stand across the street on a corner. So we did. And then there were a lot of undercover police officers, not Vatican security, which they're much more gentle and they'll just put you in a room for an hour and ask you for cappuccino afterwards. But um, we were across the street and it got sort of rough and they asked us to bring our banners down, which we didn't. Eventually, my colleague and my other colleague, her translator, and this priest were taken away in the Cabanieri police cars to the station down the street. So I was on the phone calling the embassies, and they're like, well, they're just detained. You know, the U.S. embassies are no, <laughs> they're like, they're just detained, they're not arrested, so you have to wait. But the Irish embassy came for my other colleague, and they were out within a few hours. Our banners were confiscated, and they have a pending trial date. What? We're still waiting for the paperwork on that. So you may actually have to go to trial? (laughs) That's a fear, but I I think we can trust in the system here that that will never (laughs) come to fruition. And if it does, it will be 20 years from now? Yeah. I want to back up a little bit. So female ordination in the Catholic Church is such a off-limits topic that you can actually, if you're a priest and you are in favor of this, you can be excommunicated from your own church? Yeah, and it has happened to men and to women. Just this past weekend, my organization had a conference in Philadelphia where 500 supporters and advocates for women's ordination came. We had a panel of male priests in support of women's ordination. Four priests, three of them had either been removed, forcibly excommunicated or laicized, and one priest was there in good standing, coming out and breaking his silence on this panel. He didn't say anything very uh, racy or anything. He actually never said the words, I support women's ordination. But within 12 hours, he um, had been contacted by the Archbishop of San Francisco and told that he was no longer allowed to say Mass at his parish. 
these priests must really believe in it because they must go in knowing that it's possible that this will be the end or do they not suspect that at all and are blindsided? Father Jack McClure was very nervous. <laughs> a lot of priests support women's ordination privately and over the dinner table, but it is a big deal for them to sort of come out. Yeah, he was very nervous. He asked everyone in the audience to pray for him before we started. He had actually submitted a letter of resignation just in case that was held at his parish in case something happened. So when something did happen, he could resign instead of being excommunicated or forcibly removed. We should define ordination in case anybody doesn't know what it is. Ordination is one of the seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church. Seven sacraments for men, six for women. It is taking vows of holy orders to be a priest and to be able to consecrate and say Mass in the Catholic Church. So a priest, a male priest, would have to be very passionate about this cause to risk his own way of life, his own, it's more than just work, his own vocation, just to talk about this, almost knowing that he's going to lose his standing by doing so. So these must be some pretty amazing priests, looking at the bright side. Yeah, I think it's a risk to make them heroes because they have a lot of privilege and they do have a lot of backing. But yeah, they do risk their livelihood. And in the case of Roy Bourgeois, his community turned on him and he was forced out of his community of almost 40 years. You know, he's a Nobel Peace Prize nominee, a Purple Heart veteran, incredible, incredible men. But yeah, the system is... Patriarchy affects everyone, and it, it, it is a system that doesn't support sticking your head out. With this panel, we were hoping to inspire more men, and men are the ones who have the power, really, in the Catholic Church to speak out on this issue. Unfortunately, I think this might have frightened some uh, potential advocates, but I do think that as more and more speak out, the tide will change. And so, uh, you know, 50% of the Catholic Church supports these priests, so it's okay to come out and, and stand with us as well. Is there any risk to you? Yeah, I guess there is. <laughs> I mean, online you get a lot of harassment and you get a lot of opinions from people. Some people would say I'm excommunicated, but I've never attempted to ordain a woman, which is kind of the crime that one would be accused of. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of backlash. Um, sometimes outspoken advocates for women's ordination are denied communion in their own parish, are removed from their positions as teachers or professors, or just sort of silently unwelcome in academic circles or in their faith lives. You know what this kind of reminds me of? I mean, not to get over dramatic, but, you know, my background and especially what I've, you know, been doing for work for a long time, which is tour guiding, you know, is very much looking at Renaissance Rome and medieval Rome. And it just reminds me of, I don't know, the Borgias almost. It reminds me of a time in which you could... Okay, in this case, you're not going to lose your life. But, you know, being excommunicated for a very, very devout Catholic is maybe even worse than losing your life if you think about, you know, you're losing your afterlife or whatever. It makes me think of it. It's like, how could something that you believe, back in those days, if you just believed something heretical, you could lose your life or you could easily be excommunicated. And I'm thinking of like Girolamo Savonarola, who was excommunicated by the Borgia Pope for whatever it was, I can't even remember. But it surprises me that this is still... Okay, I can understand that they haven't actually started to ordain women, which isn't right, but I can understand that they haven't made that step yet. What really leaves a bad taste in my mouth is what they're doing against the people, actively marginalizing the people who have a different opinion. What do you think the real objection is? I think it has a lot to do with power and a boys' club. And 
fear of reimagining something. It's very safe to call it tradition. But we know that in the early church, there were women who were presiders over mass, and the priesthood was completely different. All of the tasks of a priest or, or community leaders were shared amongst the people based on what your true vocation was. If you were the baker of the bread, then that would be, lead into your own vocation. So, yeah, I think it's fear and fear of change. <laughs> How did you get involved in doing this? Sort of blindly. <laughs> I had kind of um, not left the Catholic Church, but studied Buddhism throughout um, university and kind of was always interested in human rights. And so I did a master's in human rights law and I was always interested in faith activism. I thought that that had the most powerful roots and teeth to any kind of activism. So I was involved in a lot of spiritual activism in the Buddhist tradition. I went to India you know, as you do, <laughs> learn Tibetan, and, and then encountered patriarchy that was very familiar. I met bad monks. I, I just felt like, wait, this is very familiar to me. And so I, I knew that I had to kind of return to my faith where I felt like I could have a voice in it and a change. And I had, you know, some really great teachers along the way, feminist theologians who came to my schools and inspired me by basically saying, we have a responsibility to speak this language, and this is what a Catholic looks like. So in that way, I was re-inspired to sort of reevaluate the real value of the Catholic faith, which I love. And I mean, our social justice tradition and our sacraments and the rituals, I think, are completely beautiful and where I'm at home. Through the Women's Ordination Conference, where I work, I kind of re-entered the Catholic Church in the back door, kind of without knowing it. I didn't know that it was so dangerous to be an advocate for women's ordination. But in doing all this work, I've found that this is how I can be Catholic today. So you were working with them before you ever moved to Rome? Right. I was working for the Women's Ordination Conference for about three and a half years. And then I did a sort of trial run and came here for three months. And then just last August, I moved here full time. Is it different working, being in the heart of Rome, doing this work versus where were you from? I don't even remember. I was living in Washington, D.C., so yeah, it's really different. Beyond the time difference, trying to communicate the church here to people in the U.S. is a huge challenge, and I do see myself in this sort of ambassadorial kind of role, because it is different. The way that Americans speak about the church and reforms is received differently. Language aside, it's they use a different jargon when they talk about church reform that I've learned to soften a little bit by being here and I do feel like I've grown a little bit more sympathetic to some of the issues and some of the priests that I've met and the vocations here but yeah it is a challenge to communicate that it is a global church. Americans are I think six or seven percent of Roman Catholics in the world but and yet <laughs> they they would think otherwise or forget to acknowledge that there's a huge world that isn't exactly where you are on LGBT issues or women's ordination. And so how to change a global church is something that keeps me up at night. I'm from Seattle, currently in Rome, by the way, in case you hadn't picked up that Tiffany and I are in the same room at the moment. But I'm from Seattle, which is a city that I would classify as spiritual, but not religious. I think everybody would agree with that for the most part. But they on the whole, are absolutely in love with this pope. What do you think of this pope? I mean, he is a great advocate for the poor and, and disabled and things like that, but what do you think? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm a little poked out. He does have a way of genuinely connecting with people, which I have even felt myself. He's authentic in who he is, and he does genuinely care, I think, about poverty and economic issues around the world. But we do think that if he doesn't connect 
those issues to the issues of women and how they poverty especially affects women around the world, then I think his message loses some of its integrity. I mean, the way that the Catholic Church treats women sort of legitimizes sexism in the rest of the world. And what we try to think about is how the Catholic Church is the educator, is the healthcare provider, is the sanctuary for people all over the world. And if that, if that school, if that hospital, and if that church is telling young girls that they are not equal or that they can't take on leadership positions or they're not the same as their classmate, this boy or man, how does that affect the rest of the world? We should mention that Aurelio is here as well. If you yeah. hear any cooing or padding going on in the background, yes. Tiffany's trying to get him to go to bed. This is why I'm slightly distracted. But um, no, a thought came to my head, and this is kind of a, a trigger of a question, not necessarily a serious question, but from someone, me, who was raised Protestant, I'm a recent Catholic, but definitely have my moments of, wait a minute, maybe, did I, did I do the right thing here? <laughs> do you ever think, you know, in the Protestant church, which has 99% of the same beliefs, if, it seems to me, do you ever think, well, the Protestant church allows female ordination in certain sects. Maybe I should just move over there. Maybe I should just convert. I mean, for someone who's so passionate about this issue. It's a common issue and a common invitation to leave <laughs> if you're not welcome here. So, yeah. The way that people that I know answer that question is, it's who I am. It's like you saying, you don't like the Queen of England, so don't be English, you know. <laughs> I tried Buddhism on, but there's this cultural identity and a sacramental and ritualistic inheritance that I have that I feel like it's an obligation to to wear. I've, I've sort of tried to describe it as like an ugly brooch that I've inherited that like I bring out when aunts and <laughs> grandma's around but like at some point I have to own it and I wear it and it is part of my inheritance and as a feminist I feel like to put it away would be a disservice to all of the other women who are suffering and men who who feel like this church isn't representative of what they know of the gospel. You're not only getting pushback from male priests and the leadership of the Catholic Church. I'm sure you get pushback from women who are within the Catholic Church, too. Even parishioners. What are they pushing back against? Um, one thing that I think is really interesting is that with, even within the movement of women who want more equality within the Catholic Church, there's a sensitivity around the word ordination. It's sort of a trigger word. People will go out of their way not to say ordination, even if they support equality in the Catholic Church. And so something that I've tried to, to notice and trace and be sensitive to is how some women and men will talk all the time about leadership or equality, or, but will never mention the word ordination. Why would women be against other women becoming priests? Uh, well, a lot of women say that they have enough power, that they're not oppressed, that it's a, a stupid argument, but it's like, why would I want to be a cleric? Why would I ever want to be a priest? And that kind of logic is completely ridiculous. That's like saying, why would I want to be president? That sounds like a terrible job, so no women should ever be president. It's, so um, we hear that a lot, even amongst so-called progressive nuns and women. I, I do my job. This is my vocation. So that's really hard to hear. I think it's, there's a, some blinders on there. Yeah, I have a friend who is very, very Catholic. When I brought this up to her, she said, and I'm not going to quote her because I can't remember her exact words, but it was so strong. And she's a very liberal, very, you know, you'd think progressive Catholic. And she said something like, I wouldn't want to be part of this church if women were priests. And I thought to myself, 
why not? And she, you know, she said, well, and she kind of went a little bit over my head talking about scripture and Jesus said this and that. And, uh, but, you know, I just feel like even if you're Catholic, even if you believe the Bible, there are things that have changed. There are things that women do today that they didn't do back in the day, back in Jesus's time. Are you against doing them now? No, of course not. So what makes... The, what makes ordination different, especially for women? I don't, that's what I don't get. I get why a priest might be against it, but why a woman just boggles my mind. I'm not saying that there's an answer for that. <laughs> Tiffany, how would you feel if Aurelio grew up and became a priest? If that's what makes him happy, then I'm okay with it. <laughs> but I would be sad if I had a girl who wanted to be a priest and she couldn't. Mm. Okay. I... <laughs> I kind of also want to ask you about just what the year has been like. I mean, you're a fairly new expat. You kind of went through what I went through, except you actually had a job, which I didn't. But what has it been like to move to Rome? It's really hard, actually. I don't know if I ever had rose-colored glasses about moving here. It's been really, it's really difficult. Everything takes a lot of thought, and even going to this, I have to go to the bakery and order a cake. I'm like, okay. This is what I'm going to say. So every little thing makes me feel like I'm kind of not a full member of society quite yet. And we've done the whole thing. We have an apartment. We signed an official lease. We have permesses. So we internet, all, the whole thing. And we've gone through the whole process. And I mean, luckily, my husband is a journalist. And so it's sort of like a third-rate diplomat. And so we get sort of ushered through a little bit of that process, which makes it much, much easier, but not any faster, I don't think. But yeah, it is a challenge. I had such a great community in Washington, D.C. that I really miss. I lived in an intentional community, and I really miss sort of being around young people my age who are interested in similar community-building issues. And what we found in our neighborhood is that there are no young people like us who live and work together without their families. We live in Prati, and there are a couple of families that we're friends with there, but it's very rare for both of us to be working and to not have children and to not be Italian. So it's just hard to meet people, people who are staying and not going to leave. That's also a challenge because people come and go so quickly here. Well, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> but we, yeah, but we do have a kid though, so. <laughs> He's brand new. <laughs> so we don't get out that much anymore, but, uh, but we're not going anywhere, not for the near future. What's your plan? Are you planning to stay for years and years to come? Or is this a, a couple year thing and then you're out of here? It's kind of up to us. We're in a very privileged position. So I think we've say like four or five years or so, but it's really up to us. And how do you feel about the possibility of staying here for four years at the moment? <laughs> better and better. We just started hanging pictures on the wall, which makes a big difference. And um, yeah, I, I think it can only get better. It has been really hard and isolating. This is our first year, it was our first year of marriage as well. Um, oh. <laughs> That's not easy in and of itself. <laughs> but it kind of made it more special. We got married in July and then moved in August. It's been sort of our own crazy adventure. So I think it can only get better, but it has been a challenge. Well, I can tell you from experience that it will definitely get better. The first year of being an expat is really, really hard. It was ridiculously hard for me, too. And I had so many. You can go back a few episodes if you're listening. And, and I can't remember when I talked about it, but I had a really hard first year. I mean, bad, like three or four bad things happened to me one after the other. It gets better, though. 
I hope so. Uh, like our first month, we were robbed. Our apartment was burglarized. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that was just one of the things. But yeah, it's so now we have no possessions, no earthly possessions. You know, so we kind of started over. Um, it was really hard, but I, I think it will get better. I keep meeting more and more people, which I think is probably the key to feeling more comfortable here. I'm confident <laughs> it'll grow to be a home. <laughs> and how's your Italian, just out of curiosity? <laughs> um, it should be better. Yeah, we don't let her harass you about this. Harass <laughs> her. I did nothing but encourage you. That's true. Sure. Yeah. Well, when we were here, we did. We lived with the host family for a month, and we did several months of classes. And now we have private tutors that we see. I still feel like I'm three years old in Italian. <laughs> and I think a big part of it is I haven't yet found my Italian persona. You know how you like become someone else and you speak a different language? I'm still not comfortable being making a fool of myself a actively. <laughs> um, so as soon as I can let go of my um, uh, self-consciousness, <laughs> self -consciousness, then, then I think I can be free to be a fool in Italian. Yeah. I never got it. I'm always a fool in Italian. Well, Somebody so asks me for a ladder, I give them a pen. That's okay. I I still make mistakes too. My husband doesn't help me though. If I say a word wrong, he'll start saying it wrong too when he's with me because he thinks it's cute. And I'll end up like continuing to say it wrong. And I'll know that it's wrong, but I can't remember anymore what the right way is because, you know, and, I, and there's a couple of words that I keep saying wrong and I'm like could you please just correct me so I say things wrong too it's been 11 years and I'm still not where I wish it were what we found also is we don't have like the cultural inheritance of Italians so like when we're in a room full of Americans everybody knows to kill a mockingbird or something but we don't I don't have the awareness of like what books did you read in high school what do you know you know just being Promessi here Promessi Sposi. Read Promessi Sposi. That's like the classic that all Italians read. What is it? It's a book by Giuseppe Manzoni. I hope I got that name right because I haven't read it. What could I compare it to? It's the big book. What's the, the book that every single American high schooler has read? Like bar none. Like there's no, I can't think. Like Romeo and Juliet? No, not that would be Dante. Their, Romeo, their Shakespeare is Dante. And there to kill a mockingbird is I promessi sposi. Yeah, see, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, my father-in-law went said to me, didn't you study Dante in high school? You don't study Dante in the United States? I said, well, we study Shakespeare. You can't study the great classics of every culture out there. Yeah, that's Not true. in high school anyway. <laughs> so when you got robbed, did you think about leaving at that point <laughs> we had just got there <laughs> no 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 it was it was fine and we just lost jewelry and wedding gifts because they actually looked for cash which was really interesting like um, we had credit cards and my computer all of that was left and they just took cash and jewelry let that be a lesson to <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, yeah I think that computers you can't get very much for them and they're so big I've, I've heard that before people say they want stuff that, that's small that they can and that they can sell yeah they also took a like plastic silver frame with a picture like our engagement picture and it took the picture out and took the frame my mom was like it's from home goods it was five dollars but anything that was like silver or gold I think that's what they were looking for I had packages of postcards that I was writing to donors and friends and and they went through them thinking it was like a stack of cash I assume but terrible way to start <laughs> What do you think you're succeeding at? 
I mean, we're doing it. That's the thing. Like every small success feels really big, and it's hard to sort of translate to Americans. But like getting internet connected, <laughs> getting cable, like getting um, a bank card here, getting a receipt that says that you are applying for your permesso, <laughs> things like that are just huge trophies. And we used to say like you can only accomplish one thing during the day. So if you come back with a bus pass for the year and a call from an Italian friend. It's just like you've won the Olympics or something. <laughs> Katie, when she first moved here, Katie and Derek were trying to do it all in one day. Yeah, I think our mutual friend AJ was the one that told me that one thing in a day and then go get a cappuccino and relax. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And But like when you go back to the States, you can do five things before noon. It just feels so easy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's also more pressure to get five things before noon done. Whereas here you could just have a coffee all day and you know, no one would really make you feel bad about that. <laughs> so it's interesting because we're doing this interview and um, we've never met you before today, but we have talked to you on the internet. And you were just, before we started, you were sharing your theory that every expat in Rome, and there's like, how many, 100,000? Yeah, probably. What's your theory about all expats here? Every expat, well, at least let's say English-speaking expats, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that's their first language, but that they speak English. I think that every single one, there's only one degree of separation between them. So if there's an expat walking down the street and you don't know that person and you're an expat, there's definitely at least one person that you know in common. And I don't think I've ever met an expat, except for when I was maybe first moved here, that didn't know at least one person that I know I knew as well. Kate and I had a person that we knew in common, and, and so did Katie and Kate. I know, isn't that so strange? To me, it's not strange anymore. It's just a law of probabilities or something. There's only so many places that expats can work and where they go that at some point they're going to find each other. Yeah, I think for me, and hopefully you'll find this to be true, is that one of the hard parts about leaving was that I met a lot of people I really liked in the last month. And I thought to myself, well, where were all these people all year long when I was wandering the streets alone? Yeah, I, I know. That always happens right when you're leaving. Well, if it makes you feel any better, when I first moved to Rome, and I was single, by the way, I didn't have any friends for, like, five months. Like, I mean, not a one. I had a roommate at one point that I became friendly with, but she always at work. And so I didn't have anyone to socialize with. And I remember moving out of that place and moving in to another place with an older Italian woman. I was just renting a room in her place. Here I was in my late 20s, and she said to me, like, why don't you ever go out? Why don't you ever do anything? Don't you have any friends? And I was kind of like, no, I don't have any friends. But there was no Facebook back in those days. There was no Twitter. There was no expat meetups. Finally, I went to a bar on New Year's Eve where I had, I guess I knew a couple of people who worked at the bar. But I remember thinking, I'm not going to sit at home on my first New Year's Eve in Rome. And I went to a bar and there was a girl sitting at the bar who was college student and we just struck up a conversation and she was my first friend in Rome and I was like thank god I have a friend what were you doing with yourself when you were in those friendless months and you were staying home what were you doing I'll tell you what I was doing in the evening what I would do and I mean I didn't do this every night but you know if I felt like I need to get out of the house I would go to a free concert because there's lots of free concerts in churches and in cultural associations and stuff so I was going to free classical music concerts a lot And then during the day, I did have a job, but it was very part-time. In addition to that, I was practicing singing, which is what I used to do before, let's say. I was visiting Rome. I was just being like a full-time tourist and just 
seeing one site every single day and trying to visit all the churches in Rome. That was my goal. I never finished, but... Uh, Some of them are never open. Yeah, that's true. But anyway, yeah, it was a very difficult, dark time. It was very, very, very hard. So I know what it can be like. And I do think it's easier when you come with somebody else. Yeah. I think I've oversold my sob story. We know people here and we have friends. And You're alone at night, <laughs> sitting in the dark. No, no, no. Clearly no one was as much of a loser as I was. <laughs> it's not that. No, we, we have lots of friends. And through my husband's work, we have a lot of work colleagues and there's a lot of English speakers there and Americans and yeah, so I'm not alone in the dark <laughs> drinking wine, but um, <laughs> it would be nice to have like a more steady community, I think, of younger people. A lot of the people we know have been here for 30 years and Rome has changed so much that they don't have a lot of advice about how to do certain things or navigate some bureaucracy, but they've been as helpful as they can be. Well, we have to wrap it up pretty soon, but I just want to jump back to your job again. I mean, it sounds like Fighting for women ordination would be very frustrating. It would have its successes, but it would also keep hitting a wall. Do you see yourself being able to keep going with the fight until, hey, they go for it 30 years from now, 20 years from now? Or is this going to be something where you or your colleagues just sort of after a few years, you just can't do it anymore? Well, our organization has been around for 40 years. So in that Sometimes it feels like we never win, but we've had to reframe the question and reframe what success looks like. So I, we just came from this amazing conference with 500 people who were energized and they had been at the first 1975 conference. So like, I got a shot in the arm really with all of these incredible people in one place. So I'm confident that this will happen and I have to stay hopeful otherwise you know, I would be in the dark drinking wine alone, I think. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to be there when it happens. And I know that it's optimistic to say it'll happen in 100 years, but you have to believe it and, and know that you're on the right side of history. Would all it take would be a, a pope to go for it? Is that really what it comes down to, is the man at the top has to say, I'm for it, and start the ball rolling? No, that would start the ball rolling. There would have to be other changes that would happen. I mean, we've seen it with what other things that Pope Francis has said he has a lot of resistance within the Curia and the Council of Cardinals, so it would require, I think, a meeting of the cardinals, a change in canon law, a lot of theological development or opening of discussions. But it wouldn't hurt if the Pope <laughs> opened the discussion. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, the Vatican is an absolute monarchy. It's not like Britain, where it's a, what is it, a constitutional monarchy? The, the Pope actually has, like, full... 100% power. I know he doesn't use it. You're right. They do have to have support from the cardinals and stuff. But it, I always ask myself, why can't the Pope change something if he wants to, if he's passionate enough about it? Maybe you know why? I'm not an expert. I, I think that if he did open the all ministries to women, that it would encounter a lot of backlash and a lot of procedural sort of backing. I'm not convinced that if just the Pope said women's ordination. I mean, there's debate whether or not in the past if this has been an infallible teaching. Even infallibility requires certain stipulations. You have to be seated here and have this and that. And so it would be tricky, but I, I guess it could happen. You know, it's sort of disheartening and heartening to think that it's one man who is blocking half of the church's population. But I think it's a bit more than that. Have you envisioned how it could happen? how it will come to be? Yeah, I mean, foolishly, I thought when the Pope came back from the U.S. that he would actually say something 
different about women's ordination. And that's why I was a little misty at the bus stop coming over here because he does have this gentle approach and he has softened and, and yet this still seems to be like the last bastion, um, the, last, the last thing that um, will change. So yeah, I think it could happen. And I, you know, every day I have to be like, well, maybe today, well, <laughs> because otherwise, what else are you gonna do? You know? What did the Pope say coming back from America? He was asked by a reporter about women religious, which he praised in the U.S., um, and then he was asked about the role of women in the church and that some groups in the U.S. have been asking about women priests. And he basically said, that can't happen. Pope St. John Paul II had long discussions and closed that door. I mean, it goes on and on. I don't, I don't have the whole quote, but it's, I mean, it just seems like the last gasp of a, of a dying system. The theology is flimsy and... And really, this is sort of pathetic at this point. It's probably that they'll get rid of celibacy before they get rid of the bar against women being in leadership. The prediction is always celibacy and they'll allow married priests, which for some um, ordination advocates, that would set us back, I think, a little bit because suddenly this priest shortage would go away because, I mean, a lot of men don't, they want to have a family, which they should, but... Yeah, people predict that that will happen first. Or the women deacons, the diaconate will be open to women first. At the very least, deacon can be married and give communion. I don't know. I'm with you on this. I don't understand it. I just don't see why. When I was a kid growing up, my father was a Presbyterian minister. One of the churches, from my understanding, that he was at for a long time but decided to leave one thing that was starting to drive him crazy was all these little arguments about whether or not women could even teach like an adult ed class. That was in the 80s. It's just so surprising to me that, that you could be in 1985 and, and still be thinking, I don't know if she's qualified to teach adult Sunday school. Doesn't that seem ridiculous? And it was ridiculous. I don't know. I, I don't think I could ever do a job like yours. <laughs> I don't, it's very odd that it is a job, I'll have to say. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, there's the passion part of it, and then there's also running an organization, and we represent thousands of members around the world, so it is sort of networking people so they don't feel alone in their conservative area and really kind of inspiring grassroots actions all over. So there's fighting the Vatican, which is now in my backyard, but also inspiring people around the, around the world to feed themselves spiritually and to do what feels safe and and if that isn't going to church anymore, if that is having a house church in your house with your friends and family, then we want to support those women as well. So there's a lot more than just trying to change canon law. It is about sustaining oneself for decades <laughs> until the Vatican changes or you don't care if the Vatican changes. Now, for anyone listening who is Catholic or not Catholic, but is in support of this cause, is there any way people can donate to the cause or do something? Sure, yeah. Our organization, the Women's Ordination Conference, is completely member-funded. We don't get grants. It's individuals giving small donations. So it's womensordination.org, and you're welcome to donate there, or time, talent, and treasure. Any way you want to help us, that would be really welcomed. Kate, we should leave it there. Right, Tiffany? Yep. But thank you so much for coming over to Tiffany's home here in Tristavray and spending time with us. It's fun to meet you after all this time. I'm so excited to meet both of you. Thank yeah. you. We should check in with you, uh, I don't know, a year from now and see if you're feeling more comfortable. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if we have women priests too. As soon as women are priests, yeah, we'll call. <laughs> yeah, we'll call. 
<laughs> yeah, don't call us. We'll call you. Yeah. <laughs> you won't need to. We'll be on the phone with you in no time. All right. Well, until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Talk to you next week. We welcome your questions and your feedback. Reach the show by emailing bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com.